Hello and welcome to College Admissions with Mark and Anna. Each week we talk about different college admissions topics and answer those tough questions you may be dealing with concerning getting into the college of your choice. We know how stressful this process can be, so each episode we try to make it easier to navigate. Now, here are your hosts, Anna Wren and Mark Hofer. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the College Admissions Podcast with your host, Anna Wren and... Mark Hofer. Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm good. We are right in the middle of kids hearing that they are accepted, rejected, waitlisted, deferred, all that exciting point in the admissions process. With that, the talk about cost and affording college. And we're really fortunate today because we have special guest Dan Corral uh, to join us in this discussion about money and college and pricing and tuition. Dan Corral was Deputy Undersecretary of Education in the U.S. Department of Education from 2018 to 2021. He's published on various aspects of higher education, public policy, including a recent article in the journal National Affairs titled The Truth About College Costs. Dan and his wife are happy empty nesters with two children currently in college. Welcome, Dan. Well, thanks for having me. A pleasure to be here. And you're right, it's an exciting uh, February, early February moment, and both for colleges and for students right now on admissions. For sure. Isn't that true? So, Dan, I'm I'm really excited uh, to talk to you because uh, as a scientist, I love when somebody tweaks my reality. And a lot of the things that you've written have basically shifted all the things that we've been told and fed by universities and colleges about how price is determined and what college costs. And there are a number of things that you've uh, provided evidence for that, you know, we've been sold something that isn't necessarily a good representation of reality. Um, one of my favorites is you've written about the, the true cost of tuition room and board. Um, if we take out the top 100 schools, and we'll just say those of the U.S. News and World Report list, if we take those out, the published uh, costs of uh, tuition for school, the other schools has dramatically increased over the 10, 20, 30 years that uh, have preceded us. But the college costs have actually dropped since 2005. And so what do elite schools, what do they gain by making these relevant inflationary tuition jumps that have um, gone off and out stratospheric? What did they gain by doing this? Yeah, it's a good it's a good place to start um, this conversation. And in, in the case of elite schools, it is an, a simpler answer, which is um, the, they compete on quality. Primarily in terms of um, uh, people wanting to go there, uh, both and people being both students and faculty, right? Like they compete for faculty, they compete for the best students, the best faculty, the best everything, and the best donors, by the way. And donors like to give to winners. <laughs> and so, um, elite schools, um, you know, the the fact is, if you were to, and and they don't do this, but let's just imagine that you know Harvard was going to just sell admission, like sell an admission spot. Every year they're just going to sell 10 admission spots globally, anywhere in the world to the highest bidders. I mean, we all know, right? Given, you know, whatever, Russian oligarchs, people who have helicopter pads on their, on their boats, um, those admission slots would, if they were sold that way, would go for millions of dollars, right? So the market clearing price for an entry to Harvard is way more than what they actually charge. 
Um, and so they have no upper boundary, right? And of course they don't do that because what they're doing is optimizing two things. And every school is doing this to some extent. Every school is trying to optimize student quality and uh, revenue. And they do care about revenue. And so the reason that elites have um, very high prices is because um, they have a very significant percentage of families who pay that price and frankly would pay more. I mean, the interesting economics question actually is why they don't have higher prices than they do, given everything I've just said. Um, and so that to me is a little bit more puzzling. But basically, if they didn't price it at, let's call it 85 or whatever it is now, they'd be leaving a lot of money on the table. And then what they do is they just discount it um, for people that you know, that uh, can't afford to pay 85000 a year, which is the vast majority of humans. But the cohort of people who get admitted to Harvard has a surprising number of families, you know, that can pay that. And so they'd be leaving a lot of money on the table. And then when you look at what they spend to run such schools, and it, I keep saying Harvard, but it could be Carlton or it could be Amherst or it could be whatever. When you look on a per student basis, what it costs to run such places, um, it's better actually to use examples like Amherst, let's say. Uh, because it's a pure thing. There's no hospital at Amherst and there's no, you know, they don't have a big research thing. They're spending about three times as much per student to run a place like Amherst, if not four times as much um, to run a place like Amherst is as to run an otherwise identical looking liberal arts college that isn't elite. And so they're charging a ton more. They're spending a ton more. And what happens is they, it leaves the rest of the marketplace i.e. the schools, in a position of saying, gosh, like, what do we do? And that's where the whole thing gets interesting. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> Agreed. For sure. And then I love that you mentioned that at the end of the day, I think people forget that colleges are businesses too. They are not holier than thou kind of thing. So what are the three main driving forces that motivate schools to artificially elevate tuition prices? Right. So if elite schools... If, you know, as I've described, elite schools aren't quite artificially elevating tuition. And what I mean by that is that at least some proportion of people pay the whole thing. Um, so let's call that real. Um, you've got a lot of schools that increasingly it's almost, you know, it's the vast majority of schools um, where they have a tuition, they have a tuition room and board, uh, cost of attendance that um, let's say it's 60,000. That's a pretty common number these days for a private, you know, college or out of state, right? For a you know, for a, a flagship university might be, you know, 50 or whatever. Um, those, in my view, are artificial in a lot of cases because the average discount, well, the average discount across U.S. higher ed exceeds 50%. So the average family is paying less than half of what is claimed to be the cost. And in many cases, there are so few students and in some, in many cases, none. Like there are, there are many campuses in the United States where literally not a soul pays the, the sticker price. So then the question is, well, why do schools do that? Okay. So you've asked about, you know, three main sort of driving forces. Um, and I don't know if I'm going to cleanly answer with three, but I might. Um, so, you know, one is people use price. Consumers use price as a proxy for quality, right? So mark the marketing dance, and this is true for products, this is for colleges, um, needs to kind of start with how do we signal that this thing is good? You can't start the marketing dance with how do we signal that this thing is cheap? Not <laughs> typically, right? And so because people use price as a proxy for quality, schools um, have figured out that you have what appears to be a very high price. And by doing that, you sort of associate yourself with those elite schools that in many cases do cost that much. So number one is if I'm making this up, but if, you know, an elite school in the East Coast that, you know, is 82,000 a year or a non-elite school, wherever, we're going to be less than that is the practice always. 
but but sort of still surprisingly expensive. And then, so that's one thing. The second force is people love to think that they've gotten a discount. And the weird thing is people love that even when they know that this is how the system works. So Kohl's, right, the retailer, Kohl's, mm-hmm. I mean, they were the most extreme kind of out there version of this. But as we know, like there's an entire sector of retail that has has evolved across the last 20 years that is this, where the tags are, as everybody can tell, pre-printed with a fake retail price because it's already it's already struck through in the pre-printed tag, right? And then the next thing down is, you know, but you pay. It's like, okay, fine, whatever. And it's like a 50% discount or 30 or 40, whatever. So people really respond to that. They really do, right? And so um, colleges, in a way, evolved their way into that model. And then I'd say like a third thing is, you know, as, as I mentioned in the article, there's a good deal of buzz and free media um, that sort of comes along in general with these high prices, right? And so that's a kind of a byproduct of the people are fascinated by expensive things. Um, but, you know, the, the net result and the, the ultimate proof of how incredibly well this psychological operation has worked on the American people is that if you talk to a parent or a family member about what's about to happen to their high school senior in the next couple of months here and ask about cost, they will, in my experience, almost invariably talk about it through the vocabulary of how much money Johnny got from this school and how much money Johnny got from the other school. (laughs) Johnny didn't get anything. Johnny got nothing. I know how much Johnny got and it's nothing, right? Because it's just a discount. That's like walking out of Kohl's and saying like, oh my gosh, Kohl's just gave me so much money, right? Like we know that that's not what's going on. Um, And that's not what's going on in colleges either. Now, there are some instances of funded scholarships, right? Where it's like, okay, there's an endowment. The endowment kicks off X percent, quite small, um, but it's like, and it's allocated to uh, Johnny who plays church organ or whatever. And so in that case, and that is just a tiny fraction of the quote unquote scholarship money that's sort of out there. Those dollars are real. The vast majority of this stuff is just a discount. So I, I have to tell you, as as a psychologist, I hear you basically checking the top three boxes of human behavior playlist. And, mm-hmm. and I go like, you know, we've been played. And so you, you've identified three of the driving forces. But what actually determines what a student pays for college? What how how is that number created? Yeah, I'd say the big misconception, I mean. The big misconception, because it's true in some cases, but it's not true in 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 so much of this. The big misconception is, hey, um, let's say it's you know, sixty seven thousand is the price for the school. It's not a top hundred school, but it's a good school, right? And the big misconception is, if we have a high family income or if we have a low family income, like that, like that is the whole thing. Like that determines it, right? So a lot of people kind of think that, and then the next phase in is thinking like, oh, well, there's that, or there's merit aid. And so, you know, Johnny will get a scholarship for being amazing at diving or something. And um, if that's even, well, that gets complicated because that is sports, but you know, some kind of merit aid, right. That is Johnny is great at whatever. And so therefore here you go. Um, you know, need is so much less related to this than people think. Right. Because again, like if you walk into the iPhone store, you're going to buy an iPhone or you walk into the car dealership, like, they don't have any economic incentive to care whether you're rich or poor. I mean, they want the full price if they can get it. And so 
it is the case that some, I mean, schools, some schools are much more responsive to um, the family income than what, you know, than other schools. But fundamentally, the answer to your question of, you know, what determines the price the student pays to college, attend college, it's uh, the school is trying to optimize revenue and student quality. So student quality does matter to schools and it matters to them differently depending on the school. Um, they are, in fact, they're not lying when they say, hey, we're trying to, you know, comprise like the best, you know, entering class, blah, blah, blah. That's all true. Um, but at the same time, they got to hit payroll like anybody else. And so, um, and, and they're dealing with a very complex situation where they're admitting, depending on the school, five to 10 times as many students as they're actually going to want to enroll. Right. And so they don't, they don't get to decide. We, we operate like the schools are in the driver's seat. They're not right. They're like wild animals. They're more afraid of you than you are of them for the most part. And so, you know, they are like, well, we, you know, we're going to admit, you know, let's say we want an entering class of a thousand students. I'm just doing this for round numbers. You know, they'll know what their yield looks like on average. And so, well, we're going to admit sort of 8,000 students or 9,000 students, and then we'll put some on the wait list and then we'll figure out how to get our thousand. And most, as I say, most schools won't get to a thousand if a thousand is the goal, right? The vast majority of schools are not going to fill the class. And so they're trying to optimize revenue, which is bodies times what they actually get from the students, right? What's the, what do they pay? Uh, and then, you know, they care about the student quality and the different metrics of student quality. They partially because if for no other reason, um, because students that are less qualified for college are less likely to persist, like the retention is mm -hmm. lower. And so you're admitting, if you start admitting students with lower qualifications, you're going to have far fewer of them graduate four years from now. And that has a revenue impact as well. So um, grades matter um, and ability to pay one way or the other ends up mattering to an extent, except for, you know, the very rich schools that, that, that don't worry about it. Um, and that those two things together really determine what students pay. I love that you said like one way or the other. Or another, right? exactly. Yes, I was just going to say that because... I remember, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this, is like, do they create like unique prices for certain students? Like, because yes, how many kids are we entering and meeting revenue numbers by year? But does it also go into, like you talked about endowment, does it also play in where, oh, this student is from a certain background and maybe there is a chance to get more money from them down the line. And so we would extend a discount to get them in with the idea that I would make it back up later? I it's a good question. I, uh, I, you know, anecdotally, like I know that a fair bit of that stuff goes on. Um, but I'm not, I wonder if it really plays out quite that way in the following sense. Um, when you've got family, a family with means, uh, you know, really affluent families, whatever, um, you know, it's always better to get your money now than to and hope you might sort of get it later. Um, so I, I'm not certain if that would go on, but it could, um, just, you know, and this is just the commercial intuition from, you know, uh, my consulting life that, you know, that if, if the goal is to, is to, is to generate revenue from somebody, it's not a great way to start the relationship by giving them a big discount now. Right. In other words, mm -hmm. setting the expectation or whatever. So there's that. No, what I will say though, is, um, is that uh, wait lists actually get used that way to some extent, though. So mm. you're looking at a family, the family's really affluent. Maybe you know that because there's been a sibling that's gone there or, you know, whatever, their last name's Rockefeller or, or something. <laughs> um, you just try and, and so, you know, to some extent it's like, well, because again, like, I, you know, I, I don't want to sound, you know, comprehensively critical of this whole system. Like there's, there's a lot of integrity mixed in with things that are kind of misleading. And so, you know, there's plenty of schools out there. And again, especially elites that'll just say like, we're not going to admit 
the student, but we also don't, the, the, the other side of it is we don't want to insult this family. And mm. so that's, you know, wait lists get used for in all kinds of ways, but that's one of the ways they get used. Again, that's really only an issue for elite schools that are highly selective yeah. um, because the, you know, people don't, there's basic metrics people don't tend to look at, but one of them is, you know, um, just admissions, like the rate of admission, it tends to be a lot higher than people think. I was just looking at another school yesterday that people that, that actually, you know, people think of as being pretty selective. And, you know, it's when, when you consider how un, underqualified or unqualified many applicants are and how easy it is to apply to schools, when you start looking at a school that's got a 55, 60, 65% application rate, they're essentially accepting everybody who is capable of getting a four-year degree. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, one of the statistics I've always wondered about, and I know it will never come because they'd have to ask the question, but for those mid income families in mm. America whose students actually, their kids get into an elite college and they pretty much financially devastate themselves yeah. putting that yeah. student through college. And I mean, I know people who have done that and, you know, it's, it's kind of that perceived um, rarity that they're FOMO and trying to get it in. So. Yeah, it's, it's, you're absolutely right. And that's been the observation from the distance for a long time. Um, it, it, for me, and then you, know, you see it in the data when you, when you look and it's facilitated and this gets maybe into the student loan conversation, but you, then you kind of say like, well, how did they go about doing that? Well, there's lots of ways to do it, but you know, one of the things, of course, is parent plus loans. Um, and yeah, I mean, there is right now, you know, a wide open opportunity to, to uh, borrow it just a shocking amount of money at 8.5%, yeah. 8%, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which is not the most favorable, like that's not financial aid. Yeah. <laughs> right. For sure. That's just a loan. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you had, I guess another question, we had talked to um, the founder of Tuition Fit, who has, you know, founded, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Mark, but I am. Yeah. Oh, awesome. And that, you know, tuition is, negotiable or how much you end up paying is negotiable. What are your thoughts on tuition prices being negotiable? It is, it is no different than, you know, the, the analogies that I tend to use are either, you know, there's, there's an airplane and they're about to close the door and they got empty seats. Right. Um, or there's a car dealership and, you know, they've got last year's inventory still sitting there and they want to move it out. The airplane analogy is probably the most accurate in a lot of ways, right? You have this inventory of entering, again, for round numbers, you got a school that has a thousand students in their enter, or they want to have a thousand students in their entering class. You know, the admissions counselors um, will each have been given, you know, it's it's like, it, how would you do that if you were going to run it? You'd be like, okay, well, I guess we've got X in, you know, number of admissions counselors and we're going to like farm it out. And each of them is going to be responsible for delivering Y number of students, you know, and then we're going to, until we fill the class, the the language of the whole thing is about deposits. How many deposits do you have? Because once somebody deposits, it's a pretty high, awfully high likelihood they're going to attend, um, although not 100%. But um, so, you know, the fact is uh, the answer to like, our tuition price levels negotiable is well have they filled the class that's it right like mm. are there empty you know are there empty seats on that plane the doors swinging shut like do you want nothing or do you want something now there and if you think through that analogy kind of to its logical conclusion there are market presence and pricing and like sort of market power reasons why delta or swiss air or whoever would say 
actually, no, like we aren't going to let you on the plane, even though it would be like a thousand bucks for free for us or a hundred bucks for free for us or five bucks for free for us if you gave us five bucks, right? Because the marginal cost of having another person walk on the plane is zero. And the marginal cost of having another student isn't quite, but it's close. And so if you haven't filled the class, um, it makes no difference what your family income is, right? It makes no difference any of that stuff. And I think the interesting question is, you know, how much does it matter how good your, your grades are? And, and frankly, um, both the, the economics of it and also, again, my observation of the sector and its behavior is if you kind of clear the threshold to where you're the kind of student that they would admit, it doesn't really matter that much if you're an excellent student from their perspective. If you're the kind of student that they would admit, they're going to figure out how to get you into that empty seat in their entering class. And they're going to do it at the market clearing price for that college which is very likely to be about 25,000, including room and board. Well, one of the interesting conversations I've had with uh, a number of representatives, the first one I remember having made this statement was uh, Representative Furman. And I, I asked specifically, is negotiable, is, is tuition negotiable, is basically cost of attendance negotiable? And, and he basically said, you know, at this point in time, we give our final offer. For the first offer we give, is our final offer unless there are dramatic changes in, in the family, you know, either in, in, uh, jobs or health or that. Otherwise, our, our offer is firm. And I've heard more colleges actually saying that. And much to your point, I, I think until the door is closed, it's, it's worth asking. Oh, yeah. And I think too, like, Here's the thing. I my attitude towards is a, a few different comments on that. No, number one is it's it's a knowable thing um, as to whether they well everything here is dressed up in a language that is um, carefully non-commercial, right? So it's dressed up in this language that makes it. So this is why it's so impenetrable, right? Why it's so difficult for people to kind of get through the other side and see that essentially this is just a market like the market for cars or cheese or whatever. And so you've got some stuff that's more expensive. You get some stuff that's less expensive. And we have a we have a sort of a a somewhat convoluted way of getting there. The reason I like the car example as opposed to the airline one is that it, people have lived experiences, at least in the old days, of coming of walking out of the dealership and being like. No, like that's not going to do it and being chased after and you get a better price and all that stuff. So I don't think, um, I don't think the posture, I mean, like from a positioning, again, a market integrity and positioning and market power perspective, the schools aren't, they can't say, oh, hey, you can negotiate. Like, but think about it. Like no one's going to say that um, because it's just an invitation. It's just a, it undermines your claim that this is the price. Um, you find out what the real price is when you walk out of the dealership. And like really leave and you say like, no, I'm going to actually go check out some Hondas um, and the Ford guys chasing after you. That's when you find out the real price. And so um, totally depends on whether they filled the class. It's easy to figure out whether they generally fill the class, um, because if you just go to their common data set disclosure, Section H, mm. you'll see whether or not they um, give what is, you know, is called their merit aid. Um, and if they are, that that means that they're just engaged in discounting. That's all it is, right? Yeah. And so, you know, that that helps you to kind of know. Um, it would be great to know, and you're not gonna, they're not gonna tell you this, but like, you know, how you doing on? I mean, you could ask the same thing as you know, like if you had an inexperienced, you know, first this first year was optimized salesman or whatever. Um, you know, how many of these things you got in the back lot, right? I mean, that's that's your thing. Like, where are you at on inventory? Um, and so, knowing that for a school would be along the lines of basically finding out like how you doing on deposits compared to last year. Um, they're not going to tell you that, 
but that would be the thing you'd want to know. And then you'd have a sense of it. The other thing too is, um, there is, you know, again, there's a, I think there's a market clearing price that's pretty clear based on their public disclosures. If you go to like the U.S. college scorecard and just look at what's the most, what's, what are they getting from families with the highest income bracket that's reported there? Generally speaking, that's about what, you know, like if you, if you're affluent, that's probably, you're not going to get, you're not going to get away with paying a whole lot less than that. So I, I love your analogy with, with cars, especially because if there's a person who is dead set on, you know, Ferrari's the best thing ever. They go into the Ferrari dealer. They're not asking for a discount. They're going to pay it. They've already got their head around it. And it seems very similar to, if, let's just use the analogy of a Ferrari of a college. If, well, that's what you pay. That's how much it costs. Mm-hmm. So that comes up. One of the phrases that you've used is uh, facsimile of market price, which mm-hmm. I'm going to um, pilfer from you and, and use commonly now when I talk with parents, because I think it's an important one that you understand the perceived cost of college. And then there's the actual cost to educate a student. So you use the word facsimile of market price. Can you explain what that facsimile really is? Yeah. So, you know, the, um, the, the numbers that are out there, the way the market is structured here, and there are, other examples of markets that are like this. Um, and I'll, in the middle of this conversation, I'll just say as an aside, as people were wondering, where on earth is this guy coming from? My real career before was in the Department of Education was in management consulting. And then my training is sort of as a lawyer at the University of Chicago, where everything is kind of economics-y. And so um, that's kind of why I've seen a lot of this stuff and think in these terms. But um, so the structure of this market is um, there are incentives that I've described before where everybody prices as if they're all kind of about the same price, right? So the the weirdness of the market is that while, as I said before, um, your typical uh, college in the mid, well, anywhere in the country, um, spends, you know, a quarter to a third as much per student to run the place as a place like Harvard or or Amherst, um, they all price as if their price is just slightly less than Amherst and Harvard. So that's kind of like the facsimile piece, the facade piece. They need to put that up um, for credibility and for because everybody else does, right? Um, but the the underlying thing that's real is very nearly uh what they end up getting per student is pretty close to what they spend per student, right? Like these things aren't, it's not like they're running a well, the other thing I want to make clear is I love these, I love these schools, right? I I care about this issue because I just I love these places and they matter to me. Um, but so what they end up, they're not like running off with a bunch of money. Um, we're only talking about the nonprofit sector right now. I'm not talking about yeah. for profits. That is so different. It's another conversation. Right. Fascinating conversation. Totally different. <laughs> so nonprofits, it's not like they're running off with a bunch of money. What they're getting is they got the facade price, which is like, Hey, we, we feel kind of like collectively obligated to say that we cost 72,000 or 55 or whatever. Um, and because within their own like little mini market, they'll be like, well, we have to be, usually the conversation is we have to cost more than this school and less than that other school. And that's how, literally that's how they price it. And so from there though, they pretty much end up getting from students about what they spend on a per student basis. Uh, they actually get less than that, right? Because they have other sources of income and whatever. And so that's the deal. Um, but it's, I think, important for, you know, families going in uh, to know like, well, look, this is what it costs to run the place. And so if it's, unless it is an elite school where they're able to your point about the Ferrari example, where they're able to just name their price. Um, and you know, basically that's roughly the top 75 to 100 schools in the country in some way, which educate 
you know, maybe 5% of American students, maybe, um, unless it's one of those, you're going to end up, you should end up paying about the per student cost to educate the students. And which, you know, that it's a very weirdly correct place to land <laughs> at the end of a whole thing that was totally screwed up. Right. But it is where uh, it is where on average it lands. The thing that's troubling and the reason that I care about this so much is there are families who, I mean, who are deterred from ever looking at college because they think it costs a zillion dollars and it doesn't. There are people who end up to your example that you just shared paying tons who think, well, that's what you just have to do. Right. And some of those families actually are lower income families. I mean, the most tragic stories are folks who are genuinely low income um, and they get, you know, and this is this will happen even at state universities. Like you'll be like, you know, your dream is to go to Alabama or something. And uh, and so the you know mom says single mom says, well, I don't want my you know, my baby boys work so hard to get admitted. He's been admitted to Alabama. I want him to live his dreams. And because she thinks that everybody pays this much, which is totally not true. Alabama says, well, our sticker price for out of state is X. And so they don't react by saying, well, we're going to walk. We're going to walk out of the dealership until you Mm -hmm. give us a better price. The reaction is, well, how do I facilitate that? And at which point they kick you over to financial aid. And all of a sudden she's filling out parent plus loans. Um, That's insanity, right? That's really unfair. And uh, and those are the stories that, and you know, that is a minority of American family stories, but it's not good. Insanity or moral. Yeah, that's a. That's a tough question mm-hmm. for sure. No, I, I appreciate that. I actually did actually meet with a family like that. And it was really hard because they're like, well, this is first gen. This is the first kid to go to college. They worked hard. We we need to make it work. And I was just like, but you can't. <laughs> like there are so many other colleges out there where you could make this work. It just might not be his top choice. Um, but you were talking about scholarships before and like the discounting, right? right? And obviously there's so many colleges with different fancy names for different scholarships. And you said some are, you know, earmarked from endowments or for certain causes. But what are like the common frames? Like some will say it's a scholarship, some will say it's a grant, some will say it's because of this. What's like what, is there a difference between like the discounted quote unquote scholarship or institutional scholarship versus like, are there any quote unquote true scholarships offered by colleges? Yeah, there, you know, there are, they tend to be, um, well, let me just start by, by, I, I, I am guilty of probably making things more confusing and I, and I, it would be my hope and prayer that someday the whole thing would be less confusing. So let me just say, I'm using the word discount. Nobody uses the word discount. Families might be confused when they hear that because they're like, nobody says that word. Mm-hmm. I say it because um, it's true. And to say that you're getting institutional aid is, in my view, not true. It's not done with malice. Um, it's just that that's the way it evolved. So institutional aid or institutional scholarships are instances where they say, hey, um, we, you know, the price is 62,000, but, you know, Johnny's so special, it's only going to be, you know, 27,000 for him, you know, cost of attendance, including room and this board. File That's a pretty common combo. And as I said before, the average discount in American higher ed exceeds 50%. It has for, for quite a while now. And so if that is a typical scenario, you know, there, there are sometimes like little components of the aid offer you get that actually are funded scholarships. And so, you know, some time ago, somebody gave a bunch of, I'll go back to the church organ example. It's a religious school and, uh, you know, somebody endowed a thing so that, you know, uh, 
people that want to study church organ get a, a funded scholarship and that's real money comes out of a real bank account somewhere or a separately accounted for thing goes to the school it defrays the cost of attendance so that's real and i got no problem with that right but when you basically in order to have an, a scholarship or rather an endowment where you're not eating away at the principal the convention is to um you know to only draw you know four and a, the convention is four and a half percent that you draw off of that per year and so the thing is it so you know, people talk about endowments and all this money that sloshes around higher ed. And there is a lot of philanthropy, especially in the United States. Um, but here's the deal. If you give a million dollars to an endowment, congratulations. You just bought a very expensive $45,000 a year. Like a million bucks gets you 45000 a year, right? That's 4.5%. So, um, you know, most, you know, when students are getting those kinds of like actually funded scholarships, they're usually like, you know, 1500 bucks or 3000 bucks or something like that, like per year. And that's all great, but they are, they are just a drop in the bucket compared to the quote unquote institutional aid, which is just pure discount. There's no money there. Very good. So you've, you've identified, you know, some of the, the misconceptions and I, I don't want to call it deceptions, but in, in my heart, it sure sounds like um, a lot of families and students are deceived in not being provided the full picture of this whole thing. So what if I just say, so what? And mm. let's just have the conversation now. Everyone knows that everything that's published and provided and promoted and printed is just this facsimile of reality or it's, it's a facade. So if we all knew that and we were just to have this conversation, everyone knows or doesn't everyone know? And who does this influence the most if you don't know that you're being played? Yeah. I mean, I guess I could say up top that a couple of things. One is I, I, I've, learned about myself over the last decade or so that I guess I'm particularly allergic to lying. Um, <laughs> some people are more comfortable with it than others. Right. And because here's the thing, there's loads of like in the commercial world, right? Like there's loads of the stuff that goes on using the L word and calling it that is, is even kind of extreme, I guess. Right. You know, not too many people storm out of coals saying you're lying by saying that. <laughs> right. Uh, and I don't either. Right. And so, so what's to your, so what, well, you know, if it is Kohl's, I would even still contend that it's probably unhealthy in a culture to bake in misrepresentations, even as as relatively harmless as the ones at Kohl's, right? I would contend that because those are not real prices. Nobody ever pays the thing that they claim people pay. And if they and they're doing it for a reason that's because we respond to it. So okay, but in that example of Kohl's. Everybody does know what's going on and it is literally transparent. So they're not actually doing price discrimination by saying like, Hey, Dan, you know, it's 75 for you, you know, but Mark, it's going to be 50 for you. And Anna, it's going to be like, you know, 112. They're not doing that. Right. It's just, so in that case you say, okay, well, that's the, that's the simplest base case of it is a misrepresentation if you want to call it that. And it is probably as close to harmless as it gets. It has a little bit of an effect on our heads, but because otherwise they wouldn't do it, but fine. Um, you know, the, the, um, then we know the story with car dealerships and whatever. And of course, this is what's underneath, um, the various white papers and advocacy groups and whatever who pointed out that demographically some people end up paying more for cars in a negotiation context than others. Right. And so that's because if you didn't have variable pricing, then you wouldn't have that outcome. So there you have, you're stepping into the world of, well, um, you know, uh, whether or not people, everybody knows that this is what's going on, 
um, there are differential effects. Okay. So there's that happens. Um, and I think, you know, in the college context, I would say it goes one step further, which is it's kind of like the car dealership example where different people are paying different prices. It isn't agnostic. The outcomes there don't tend to be agnostic demographically. And so you're going to have some people, right, who, who know more about the system, who know less about the system, whatever, but you know, they pay more. And maybe it's not the right people that are paying more, quote unquote, if you will. But then the other piece of it with a college thing that kind of bothers me, um, and I'll do one that's practical and one that's highly abstract. The practical one is that because it's all wrapped in the government seal, like that's just how we've done it. Mm-hmm. So you know, the Department of Education, federal student aid, all that stuff, it, it is literally the federal government. It feels awfully official because, I mean, you know. It is. It's certified. Right? I mean, you know, it's got a federal thing on there. Like, you know, it is, it is, right? So so people aren't wrong or they're not crazy to think that this is like pretty official. And so, you know, it would be like if the car dealership is there saying like, well, we've reviewed, you know, your your submission, right? And we've decided that you, you know, that you owe this much, you know, in order to have that car. And by the way, we're not going to, we're, we're really, really not going to tell you what other people are paying. This is the mm-hmm. thing that Mark is trying to uh, do at tuition fit. You know, um, to me, that is concerning. Okay. So that's number one. Number two, and this is the one that's much more abstract and philosophical, but I tell you, I, I think about this a lot as I deal with schools and um, at its best, higher education is an invitation to join a community of people who mm-hmm. can kind of leave aside the transactional like nature of things to focus together on how they can learn and grow and all of that good stuff. Um, this would be acutely true at a residential small college. And that's kind of the context that like my wife and I and my kids and whatever are used to, but you know, also I've been at big universities. It's, it should have an aspect of truth everywhere. But I think um, because people now know to a, to a pretty great extent that this all goes on and that schools have gone from being, I'd say 50 years ago, for sure, um, sort of neutral players in the nonprofit space that basically said, well, here's our budget for next year. And so therefore, this is what tuition is going to have to be. And so that's the deal. And there was no shenanigans to now where everybody like nobody can figure out exactly what's going on. But everybody knows that it's not that right, that there's some maximizing going on and there's some opacity that's on purpose and some misrepresentation. I think you have undermined the trust that's at the essence of schools being able to say, hey, you've joined a community because, right, everybody kind of knows like, all right, you can say that, but it doesn't feel that way. And I haven't even arrived yet. I think that's really sad. I think to me, that's kind of the primary reason why I'd love to see the system get fixed somehow. I've, I I can't help but and it's it's basically I think there are people who through that deception they they kind of deflate what's really happening. And when I hear you talk about this, I, I think of I, I visited one of my international students and he took me to an open market. And basically I was buying something um for my wife and uh the person selling it gave me a price. And so I started handing money over and mm. did that. And the student yep. totally. basically said what are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm paying them. And they said, <laughs> you've, you've actually offended them. And I said, how, how does that happen? And he explained to me, you need to barter for this. Right. And there's a very different thing from that. And everyone knows what's going on and they're all cued in to what you were talking about. I think with the amount of money and debt 
that uh, it represents. So I think it's right. two different you, you, things. You were engaged in a spontaneous act of charity from the perspective of the person who was selling you the belt, the purse, or whatever. Yeah, no, I exactly. I, I, I will tell you, yeah, my first experience, and back to how much I I, I love these places that were transformative for me. And um, yeah, I, I studied abroad uh, when I was a junior in college. Uh, and among other things, I spent a summer doing archaeology. And so, uh, and this was in Israel. So I spent, you know, like spent a lot of time in the West Bank and Jerusalem and this kind of thing. And yeah, exactly. Right. Like I learned how real mark, cause that's, that's a real market. We do, we do a lot of weird fake stuff in the West. Right. But like, that's a real market. Like <laughs> yeah. they got stuff hanging on the wall. You, you decide you want the thing. And then, then there's like, then you all figure out together how much it's going to cost you. And you learn a yep. lot if you do that. Yeah. <laughs> It's so interesting. I feel like this must be like the story whenever you go abroad. Cause I definitely like my husband's like, you're sure you don't want me to go with you to buy. I was shopping <laughs> and he's like, cause they're going to take you to market with your accent. <laughs> they're going to know that they can charge you more. And I was like, as long as I'm okay with the price, you know, I'm not here necessarily because it's still a bargain for me, if that makes sense. But um, yeah, but th- at least you're like, I think everybody goes in with their eyes wide open knowing exactly, which is not necessarily the case, I think, with college tuition and cost of attendance and everything for most people. Um, but you brought up a great point before in terms of, you know, colds and everything. But, you know, we talk about if so much of, you know, what determines a quality school. So, oh, they raise their price because that you know, elevates their standing as a quality school to be in line with top 100 schools. Oh, well, you know, um, whatever the other second factor was and, oh, they get more press that way. But the truth is like, if we were to help families that were actually looking for a good value on their education, what kind of information should they be looking for? And I asked that question because I also know, like I come from a school where a lot of money is spent on let's say the athletic program. And so, you know, they do spend that money and they ask for it from students, but for, you know, anyone just seeking for a quality education and experience, what quality should they be looking at or what information should they be looking at to determine that, hey, this is a good value um, for the money I'm going to be paying? Yeah, um, a few things. I I could, I will, I will resist the temptation to provide a lot of um, kind of nerdy, complicated stuff. Um, Cause there's tons. I mean, the, the sector, uh, the, the, com- the comment that's worthwhile there is the sector is a wash in publicly disclosed data, stuff that the colleges are obligated to disclose. So, it, you know, it's not actually the case um, that, that it's, um, you know, that the schools are hiding stuff. That's the thing. But it turns out that if you can throw enough, that actually they're obligated to disclose a haystack of material every year that obscures the needle completely. So like people could figure this all out theoretically, if they were to just like, you know, devote an infinite amount of time this to it to figure out for the schools what's going on. So I'm going to start with a very, very simple thing, which is um, I was, I, I learned many years ago. And, and my, what I say now is if you just tell me the four year graduate, if you tell me the publicly disclosed four year graduation rate of a school, I can tell you most other things about the school. Um, and to the extent that it departs from my expectations with respect to the other stuff, then we'll know the way that it's weird or interesting. Here's what I mean. Um, the most elite schools have four-year graduation rates that are that are creeping up above 90%. It's extremely rare in nature to find a school that has a four-year graduation rate that's frankly even close to 90%, but certainly not above it. 
Um, you, as you look, if you, the U.S. College Scorecard is the place where I would want every family to go immediately, preferably before ever reading the website or a brochure or anything from the school, because this is the stuff that they're obligated to disclose. <laughs> and it's always in the same format, right? <laughs> now, do the website and do the brochure and all that stuff. Like that's Those are great bases for decision, but this is in the same format for every school and it's whatever. So it's not the only source, but it is it is government mandated, reported in the same way, in my view, accurate, right? Like schools will make, you'll see some weird stuff in the data occasionally, but in my view, it's accurate. So it's U.S. college scorecard. It's, you just Google that and you'll get there. And then you put the college name in there. The four-year, I mean, there's a lot of detail there that you can get, but if you start with a four-year graduation rate, um, the higher that thing is, the better the, the quote unquote better the school is by most any standard normal people would use, right? In other words, the academic quality, because the academic quality tends to be higher as it's higher, et cetera. What's a good one? Um, you know, look, if it's above 90, you're, t- you're looking at an elite school. And if it's not an elite school and it's at or near 90, it's that's awesome. It's amazing. I haven't studied every four-year graduation rate in the country. Um, but you do have some schools that are surprisingly high, right? When you start looking at schools and you can't figure out, like, because they all start to look the same kind of, right? Like, I'm sure you live in that world. And then sometimes you'll go, look, though, and one's got a 78% four-year graduation rate, which is pretty respectable, right? Like, I happened to look at Baylor yesterday, 78%, whatever. So it's respectable. Um, it is perfectly common, I mean, for schools to be in the sort of 60s and not not that surprising when schools are in the 50s for four-year graduation rate. Now, sometimes there's a story underneath it that can help you to kind of understand, but it is really important to look at that first. Um, and that's going to tell you an awful lot about the school. Um, you know, from there, if you just stay on the college scorecard, I mean, honestly, they've got breakdowns by, you're going to find out pretty much if you look in the costs section, they break it down into five different chunks of term of like income bands and they say what the you know average student is paying within those different income bands there's some problems with that data but it is accurate as far as it goes uh and so i think looking at that is going to give you a pretty quick sense of like okay what's going on here economically um at the school and after you've looked at a few of them you're going to start to notice some interesting patterns um and so i would look at that um as well um, you know, and then, you know, these days, though, a lot of stuff has gotten funky uh, because, uh, you know, test optionality has really changed some of the, the reliability of the statistics. What colleges will tell you, I mean, they won't probably say this publicly, but what everybody will say privately is, look, grade inflation has gotten so extreme in high schools yep. that we don't have any idea right. what it means that somebody's got a whatever whatever GPA they claim. And a lot of times people are saying they have you know a five point two and a four point scale. You're like, I don't even know what this means anymore. Yep. And yep. so you know it's it's there's all that. So I think you know quality of this is why I come back to that four year graduation rate. Um, to me is kind of like where the spade turns on how is the academic experience going for students. And also, frankly, it's a it's a vote with your feet measure of do the students like it there? Which is a good indicator of the quality of their experience and the environment and are they motivated to study? Yeah, all of those things. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't thought about that. I'm sure that's the number one characteristic that U.S. News and World Reports use. In their evaluate no probably not so it's how much it's how much microfiche you have in your library yeah. <laughs> yeah. it really is that to some extent but it's a lot of other stuff too yeah that's right yeah so dan ann and i started a, this uh podcast about six years ago and one of the things that we both really wanted to do was just try and level the playing field we knew that there were so many students who wouldn't have the opportunity to work with an advisor um, we were never going to be able to talk to them individually. 
individually. But we thought with the podcast, if we ask people the right questions and we kind of put information out there to, to you know, level the playing field and make information accessible, because a lot of the things that we actually provide students and families with, it's just information. So if we could get that information out there, we'd, you know, possibly help a lot of families. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, if there was one thing that you would suggest that uh, families know or work to understand about this whole pricing before they're, they're and like you said, they're, before they even look at a college list or, you know, before they even start talking about what they want to major in, what are some of the things associated with pricing and tuition? Then mm-hmm. what's that one thing they should really do first? I do think my, uh, my one thing, if I have to pick it, I guess, is um, as I'd framed it before, just realize that the vast majority of schools, like the vast majority of wild animals, are more afraid of you than you are of them, right? <laughs> the biggest brokenest thing in the system is the belief that when you're dealing with the school, it's like you're dealing with the IRS. Like yeah. what the IRS, I mean, I, I haven't gotten on the wrong side of the IRS, but I am reliably informed that like, you don't mess with them. Okay. And you know, the schools, because the the IRS doesn't need to bargain, but the schools are wrapped in something that has the same kind of federal seal on it. And so everybody's been made to feel like this is just the way it is. Now here's the deal. Some schools, the elite schools, Harvard, whatever, Stanford, they, um, you know, they still aren't the IRS. They can't make you go there. But they can make you pay a lot of money if you insist on going there. And so I guess the other thing is, number one, most schools, the power dynamic is so different than people think, right? Whenever I'm whenever I'm kind of, you'll have a, a, a friend or whatever that says, hey, our son got into filling the school or our daughter got into filling the school. <laughs> and I have, I have a good sense of, you know, generally speaking, what the schools are like. And, you know, I don't ever email them back and say this, but... What I just think is like, I've met your child. They were definitely getting in. Like, there's no need for slapping a high fives here. Like, this is like, right? Like, I would hire your child tomorrow just because they're literate and they can, you know. And so, you know, it's it, it's so much easier. And this is market stuff, right? Like, this has to do with the money. It's so much easier to get into the vast majority of schools in the United States than people think. And I will say the other side of it is it's so much harder to get into Chicago or Stanford or whatever than people appreciate, right? Yeah. So the chances your kid are going to Stanford are, are, are great. They're as good as your, ch- your child making the Olympic team. It's fine. You just need to understand <laughs> that up front. But it's incredible how fast it drops off. And that's exactly what pricing looks like, too, which is that, you know, the moment you go from Stanford and Olympic team, whatever, like what would people pay? What would somebody in the world pay for their kid to be on the Olympic team? Just think about that, right? <laughs> but you drop down far enough and it quickly flips to the schools are, they're really sitting there going, how are we going to make payroll? And so um, that's one one thing. And then the, you know, the other piece of it that just comes along is, you know, you got you to gotta be willing to have that conversation and keep it going. And just like negotiating and, you know, and maybe in open markets or whatever, not to be deterred by words that come out of the, person's mouth on the other side, right? In other words, like they're obligated to say certain things. So don't worry about it. But you do have to be willing to walk out. Like you only find out the price when you leave and you have to actually be willing to leave. The sad thing again is you cannot tell the kid up front, look, you get to go wherever. 
Like, unfortunately, that's just you. You can't. You can't unless you're Bill Gates or something. <laughs> yeah. Actually, no, be think- ready. Be ready to walk out the door. Have that in the back of your mind, and that puts you in a position of power. So, at least yeah, have that. And, on your and you side. may actually have to walk out the door. You yeah. Know? I mean, that's the thing that's hard about it. It's not just a tactic. It's like, no, really, you might not get to go here. I think that's very important that they have those conversations early so that they're not stressed out and pressured when um, Mm -hmm. the deadlines come, let's say. Uh, But, you know, in talking about affording college, a big piece of it, we've talked about scholarships, discounts, but is loans. (laughs) And we know that there is this huge loan crisis going on in the country. And so, and there's even different ways now that people are trying to figure this out. But um, when do you think, if ever, it makes sense to take a loan out for college? Yeah, you know, I, um, I'll i say as background that I, you know, of course, at the, the Department of Education, where I was for a couple of years, um, and this is going to sound like a negative thing, but it's not, um, it doesn't actually do anything related to, you know, education. Um, I kind of say that jokingly, but by statute, the federal Department of Education isn't allowed to get involved in curriculum and pedagogy and that kind of stuff. It's illegal. What the federal Department of Education does is money and civil rights enforcement and some grant making and some other stuff. And they can kind of encourage certain things that relate to teaching. But fundamentally, right, education is a state level thing or a local thing. It's at the family kitchen table, whatever. And so that's how it is. So the money piece, though, it just turned out. I mean, you know, it has turned out that the money piece disproportionately flows through Washington, D.C., And that is the loan piece. And to a lesser extent, things like Pell Grants by volume, lesser extent. So on the the thing about when does it make sense to take out a loan for college? I mean, I'll say that I started this with my kind of like interest in this by by, I was fortunate not to have loans for college, but I came into law school a long, long time ago with 100,000 in loans, which, you know, was with a lot of money at the time. um, Right. And still a lot of money today. So uh, I was very (laughs) aware, right, of the of the situation. Um, I don't think it's. I am not a uh, an absolutist on you should never you know take out loans. I'm just not. Um, I think that they 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 facilitate things as they did for for us um, to to be able to um, to do things that wouldn't be able to do. Okay, but um, you know some basic stuff um, at the college level. So we're not talking grad school now because it is a different story. At the college level, um, I think people should play within the space of federal loans that are available because as we sit here today, until Congress changes it. Um, federal borrowing for undergraduate degrees is extremely limited. One of the things that people often are quite surprised to find out is that they're actually not allowed to borrow that much from the federal government to go to an undergraduate college. And so if you really were, if for whatever reason you were thinking to yourself, ah, you know, we don't have the money, but we'll just borrow it all. And let's say it's 25,000 a year, uh, including room and board. Um, the federal government is absolutely not going to give that kid $100,000. Uh, it's just not going to happen. So the rule is, and I might get the numbers a little bit wrong here. I wrote this all down in a, in a, a long article I wrote a while ago. But I think, you know, your freshman year, your first year of college, you're allowed to borrow maybe it's 6000 or 5500 or something. And then it goes up in increments, but like, the, the, and then it's capped. Um, uh, and you really can't pay for more than a fraction of the total cost of college with a loan. So I personally think, for the vast majority of people, even if they're studying art history, whatever, and again, I'm I am actually not hostile to any of those kinds of things. Um, and those people, by the way, end up earning fine money and doing well, et cetera, if they go to a decent school. Um, I think it's fine. But if you if you the moment you start to say, hey, um, let's borrow from private in addition to federal, or let's do the parent plus loan 
like it's time to hit pause and have a real hard conversation about like, okay, let's figure out a way of not doing that. I think that, mm-hmm. and I mean, I'm sure that there are circumstances, whatever, when maybe it makes sense, but it makes me real nervous. Yeah. My wife is a financial advisor and, and she, the, the whole idea that there's whenever you hear, well, a student loan, well, what flavor, what breed, what style, what percentage, you know, mm-hmm. all of those things, even within the federal loan there, it's split in two oh, yeah. that five, $5,000 can be subsidized or unsubsidized, mm-hmm. yeah. which can mean a lot of chunk of money later down the line. So right. um, that's, that's one of those, but the whole idea of a plus loan, as soon as, and I, whenever I give a presentation, I put a little devil's face next to the word plus loan yep. and the whole idea that you are getting into a, you know, at now it's 8% plus, uh, you are writing a big check pretty soon. So, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. one of the things that we've talked about is, uh, student loans. We've talked about different types of loans. So is there really a student loan crisis? In the United States, yeah, you know, yes and no. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously the accent should be on yes in that one. It's one point seven trillion dollars. Uh, you know, it's like it's funny because like you know, when we we around the time that we we had about a hundred thousand in loans from law school, we we bought a house in nineteen ninety seven for one hundred fifteen thousand dollars. And on the one hand, in hindsight, that may seem like that was like a steal or whatever, but. Nobody knows what $115,000 looks like. Like you never, nobody's ever spent that kind of money, but at some point it's just a lot. Right. And see, the only way that you can calibrate it is like, I don't know, would other, do other sane people who seem like they're like me, do they do this thing? I mean, that's the reason that you buy a, you know, that's the reason why you say, well, it's reasonable to pay nowadays, let's say, you know, 500,000 for houses because the people bought something next door and apparently they're, they're not deranged and that's it. Right. Cause nobody knows what, what that's like worth. <laughs> so, you know, uh, the, on 1.7 trillion, um, I mean, nobody knows, you know, like other than that, that is just an enormous amount of money. The other thing, and, and when I, I keep saying that 1.7 trillion is notionally the amount of money that has, uh, that is owed, uh, the, uh, the federal government from student and parent borrowers. Um, it is not, I don't think anybody thinks the amount that the federal government will ultimately collect. Okay. So there's that issue. And it's actually such a big mm-hmm. number that starts to become a fiscal thing, right? Um, where you go like, oh gosh, like we were kind of counting on getting this money back and maybe we're not going to. Um, but, uh, if you were to then just step back and say, okay, well, let's like break this down a little bit. Okay. Um, how much of that is undergraduate borrowing? How much of that is graduate borrowing? How much of that is like parent plus loans, that kind of stuff and break it into different categories. Um, almost by definition, you know, because of what I said, you know, Congress set these, these limits many years ago and haven't, because Congress doesn't do stuff. I mean, if they can avoid it, they don't do stuff. And so they haven't updated that. Right. So it was, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not looking at it right now, but it's, it's a, it's a, the problem people run into. I've had this conversation with folks where they say, Hey, uh, we're going to be able to borrow, you know, it's 25,000 a year and, and it's a good school and whatever. And we're going to be able to borrow, let's say six to 7,000 a year from the federal government. And that's that. Some of it's subsidized, some of it's unsubsidized, but it's capped at around 30,000 for the whole four year experience. We don't know where the other 70,000 is going to come from. Um, because it's capped, yeah. it hasn't been updated. I do think that when Congress gets around to like updating some of this stuff, and I saw some proposed legislation this week that would do this. Um, if they were to reform the system, what some people would want to do is like get rid of plus loans and, and, and make some things better. But at the same time, I don't think too many people would disagree and I wouldn't either. It would be okay to increase those caps a bit. 
Um, but so the undergraduate piece isn't a crisis. You know, it, it gets repaid at a pretty decent rate. It's for people who actually get a degree. Um, it's repaid at a pretty high rate. It's not a crushing amount of money. It's all pretty good. Um, there are places where you've got a, a problem that feels like a crisis. Um, uh, that we've mentioned the plus loans, parent plus loans, um, folks that they're not capped and like you can take out up to the cost of, um, attendance, which can be huge, um, for undergrad and for grad school. So that's, that's areas of crisis. Um, the, uh, graduate school stuff straight up, right? So you, these days you're graduating from law school with 250,000 in loans is not uncommon. Med school can be more. Again, there's no cap. Um, and so that is, uh, that is a problem. Um, I think I'm just on balance. I think med students or, or at least physicians, whatever, um, are, are paying back their loans. Okay. I'm sure it's a pain, but, um, I think they're okay, but it does distort the market because family practitioners don't make nearly as much money as people think they do. And so for a family practitioner to just, you know, show up into the world with, you know, a quarter million in loans. That is going to be really hard for them. Uh, and then on the legal side, like loads of people graduate from law school and don't have, you know, don't really get legal jobs. And so, um, they may not be able to pay those things either. So you got some, some loans that, and then the crisis, you know, a, an, an emergency is a problem you can solve, right? An emergency is the house is on fire. Call the fire department because you know what? There's a department and they put these things out. <laughs> a crisis is a problem that you don't know how to solve. And so the reason that, you know, there, if, if you want to answer, there is a student loan crisis. It's people who are stuck are stuck uniquely because student loans are uh, not dischargeable in bankruptcy, right? So I graduate from college or law school or whatever, and I've got a whole bunch of loans. Um, it, I, I can't, and I, I know people personally who've lived in this sort of purgatory of, it doesn't really make sense for them to get a job that pays well because they don't get to keep the money. They can't just, they may have declared bankruptcy or not. It doesn't matter because they can't just, you know, they can't discharge the thing that is the main thing. And so in that sense, the we've gone from individuals having a crisis, in other words, a problem that is just persistent and can't be solved um, through bankruptcy or the normal channels to having a kind of a national level crisis, which is, and I think the best thing on this was was published it was almost a year ago in the New York Times, but it was kind of an analysis that basically said, look, statistically, um, this stuff isn't going to get paid back because the average <laughs> balance is rising, right? So yeah. people were making payments even people who are making payments on average, if they started making payments, let's say three years before, and they had, let's say 60,000 in, in loans from grad school, on average, they had like, they owed like 62,000 now. So that this was just an infinite game. Like it was never going to end. And so, you know, that, that I would say is a, a crisis at a pretty chunky level at the national level. And it does need, uh, it does need to get fixed. Right. And so, you know, there's a, that's a longer conversation, a different conversation. And I'll say that I've studied it as much as anybody and I don't have a clean answer. Uh, I do believe that people should be able to discharge stuff in bankruptcy. I think that's tragic yeah. and, and, and painful and sad. Wow. You have given us a wealth of information, Dan. I so appreciate it. Um, if people want to connect with you or learn more or about you and, you know, your publications or subscribe to anything, uh, how can they get in touch? I, I suppose uh, the best thing is I'm just on LinkedIn and I don't think there's a lot of Dan Carell's in the world. That's probably the easy thing uh, to do and find me there. Um, I have had a weird career, as I say, management consulting and sort of public policy stuff. I write for a think tank related to education issues. Um, and so, uh, yeah, if you just kind of Google Dan Carell LinkedIn, you're going to probably end up with me. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much, Dan. Thank you. Thank Dan. you. Yeah. Fun conversation today.
Thanks for listening to College Admissions with Mark and Dana, where we make getting into college easy and fun. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and subscribe to get updated each time we release a new episode. Also, for more helpful college admissions information, visit our website at www.collegeadmissionspodcast.com.